All right, thanks for being patient. It seems like I've been running behind ever since I woke up early this morning. So, isn't that right? Haven't you had a day like that? Well, you start off ahead, and you've been behind ever since. So that's how t- today has gone. And uh, so maybe we'll, we'll uh, if, if that's true, we'll probably finish about 9.30 or so. Uh-oh, yeah, that's right. All right, well, let me get finish getting ready up here. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's have, we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're ready to study the word, make sure we're in fellowship. So uh, after a few moments, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can uh, be here this evening. We're thankful for the freedom we have to be able to uh, worship freely in our country. We continue to pray for this nation, for the leadership in this nation, for the many problems that we face uh, across the board in this nation, d- uh, domestic problems related to the economy, uh, foreign problems related to uh, terrorists and those that would seek to do us har- harm. Father, we pray that you would continue to protect this nation and watch over us and continue to Uh, provide for our security, for we know that the Scripture says that our hope and our security is not in man, but in you, and that no matter what we may try, ultimately our security rests in your protection of this nation. Father, we're thankful for your word, for the light that it sheds upon our lives, that it illuminates our lives to truth, that we may know absolute truth, because that is what you have revealed to us. Father, we pray that you would encourage and strengthen us as a result of what we study this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are studying in Hebrews chapter 12, the verse, Hebrews chapter 12, 14, dealing with the, the topic of pursuing peace with all men. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Pursue peace with all and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, I've already gone through the verse as a whole, but I came back two or three lessons back, to deal with this topic of pursuing peace. How do we pursue peace with people? There's basically two groups of people that we pursue peace with. Those that are will be responsive to the attempt to pursue peace and those that won't. And, and there are th- those who will be responsive may not be right away. It may be a difficult endeavor It involves, as I pointed out the last two times, it involves humility. Whenever there is any level of conflict between people, there has to be humility on the part of both people in order for reconciliation to take place. On the other hand, we know that there are some people 
that are just so mired in their own arrogance and self-absorption, their own anger, bitterness, resentment, or whatever may have caused the uh, <clears throat> breach in the relationship, that they are not going to respond to any overtures on the on your part or on the part of the uh, uh, other person. You get into a lot of different mechanics in any kind of a relational breakdown. Whenever ever there are conflicts, there are uh, perceptions that each person has that they bring to the conflict resolution. There are many times people who come and they just want to be proven right. Well, they're not very uh, teachable or humble. They're coming from a from a position of arrogance. And whenever one or more of the parties are coming together from a position of arrogance, it is very difficult to reach true, uh, genuine reconciliation between the two, uh, the two offended or the two parties, no matter who's guilty or who's not. And so <clears throat> it's important to understand basic dynamics of understanding key concepts in any sort of conflict resolution. And these come, come back to three words. Actually, I could include a, a fourth word that we have that have their root very deep into the Old Testament. These four words that <clears throat> we see are uh, peace, reconciliation, forgiveness, and love. Peace, reconciliation, forgiveness, and love. Those four words come together in any process of conflict resolution. And, of course, as I studied, as we studied in the first, <clears throat> in the first couple of lessons, to understand conflict resolution and how we as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, are to be involved in conflict resolution, we really need to start with the pattern that we have that God has given us, which is how God resolves the conflict with man. And we have to understand the basis for that conflict with man, which is, always goes back to arrogance. And <clears throat> that's what was seen in the Garden of Eden as soon as uh, the serpent comes along and addresses uh, Eve and says, has God really said? And the way the, way the serpent asked that question really front-loaded her thinking to get her pointed in the wrong direction. And that happens a lot of times in life. People ask us questions, and if we uh, if we answer the question, there's no right answer to the question, and we get sucked into a wrong position just by answering the question. Somebody goes up to a guy and says, well, have you stopped beating your wife yet? If you say yes or no, you're in trouble. You have to stop a minute and think about it and say, well, let, let me address that from another angle. I never beat my wife. Okay, so you have to stop and think. But if you don't stop and think and... You just answer it. Proverbs says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. And the idea in that proverb is don't let the, <clears throat> the way that the other person thinks, if it's a fallacious way, suck you into their framework because once you get into that framework, then you've got, uh, you're starting to think as they think and you get ca caught in a trap. So from the very beginning, <clears throat> There's this problem with arrogance, and Eve gets sucked right into the trap by the question the serpent asks, has God said? And the idea there isn't just the question of did God make this statement. There's the implication, is God right in making this, this uh, prohibition that you can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And when it's phrased that way, 
It's calling upon Eve to answer in, in terms of making a value judgment on God. Now, think about this a minute. If God is the ultimate authority in the universe, and by definition, that's what God is. He's the ultimate definition, I mean, the ultimate being, the ultimate uh, person in the universe. And biblically speaking, he is the creator of all the heavens and the earth. So he stands uh, outside of creation. He is unique. As we've seen in various studies, uh, we did it again on Sunday morning, the many passages from the Old Testament that talk about God as the unique God. There is no God like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so if this God is outside of creation, then he becomes the standard himself. He is the one who sets the standards. He's the one who sets all of the uh, values of what is right and what is wrong. All of the norms and standards are determined by God because he is the one who creates everything. He's the one who creates everyone, and he's the one who writes the owner's manual and puts it down in a PDF file, and we've got a copy of it here, okay, just to bring it into a little modern uh, illustration. We have the owner's manual, and he, as the creator, designer, builder, engineer, is the one who has the right, and the only one who has the right, to describe what the do's and the don'ts are and to put into the owner's manual what the proper uh, uh, systems of maintenance are and everything else. But when the, the serpent comes along and he asks Eve this question, he's asking her to make a judgment on the owner's manual. And, of course, the owner's manual is very short at that time. It's just don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so she, on a basis of a limited amount of knowledge, however long she'd been in the Garden of Eden, whether it's a couple of days or a couple of years or a couple of decades, really doesn't matter. She has a finite amount of knowledge based on what uh, she has directly experienced, what she has learned or experienced indirectly through what she's learned from her husband Adam or what she has learned from God as we're told God came and walked in the garden with them on a day-to-day basis. So she has a finite amount of knowledge, and this is set in contrast to God who has how much knowledge? According to the Bible, he has unlimited knowledge, infinite knowledge, It has no boundaries, no end to it. He knows everything that can possibly be known. He knows all of the things that will happen, could happen, or would have happened if this other thing had happened. And so what Satan is doing is asking this finite creature whose knowledge could be measured uh, by analogy to a grain of sand, and the knowledge of God would be equivalent to all of the grains of sand on all of the planets and all of the solar systems and all of the galaxies and the whole universe. And so on the basis of her microscopic grain of sand, she's asked if to judge or evaluate the validity and veracity of this owner's manual. And so she looks at it and falls right into the trap and says, I can do that. That's just pure arrogance to think that on her uh, such limited knowledge she can judge or evaluate God. That's what starts the conflict. Now, how is this conflict going to be resolved? Because once the conflict enters, then you have all sorts of unintended consequence. The next thing that happens is Adam sins. The next thing that happens is God shows up and says, well, where, where, have y'all, where, are, you, where are y'all hiding? 
and why are you hiding? And he points out what the problem is and what the consequences are going to be, and he begins to teach them uh, and and to give them um, to give them certain images and actions in terms of sacrifice, the clothing them with uh, skins of animals, things like that, that are all designed within his omniscient framework to build in their thinking and the thinking of the subsequent generations a framework for understanding how the conflict is going to be resolved. And that's what you see when you start studying the Bible and you start in the book of Genesis is that God begins to give information incrementally. He doesn't just do a you know, an information dump on Adam and hand him uh, <clears throat> Chafer Systematic Theology, uh, Baker Bible Dictionary, uh, Logos Bible Program, and a computer and say, okay, here's everything you need to know. He recognizes that in the learning process, you have to start off with basic, uh, basic, simple uh, sentences, propositions, and images, and then uh, build upon those. And as the centuries go by, he continues to build upon and develop and to uh, expand upon the same basic themes, the same basic ideas over and over again. And each time you come back and he does this, he adds a little more. And each thing that he adds doesn't detract from what was there before, but it adds to it and puts it in, gives it more complexity, but it's all pointing ahead to something that is going to be the ultimate resolution um, <clears throat> to the conflict. Now, that's your opening illustration for tonight, and I'm going to come back to that in a little bit when we get into uh, the passage I want to look at this evening so that we can uh, once again come to understand what the New Testament is teaching us within the framework of this, this build that God has uh, from the Old Testament. Okay, so last time, just to remind you of where we've come in this study, last time I talked some about <clears throat> the the mandates in Scripture in terms of uh, in terms of reconciliation with people, and I went to Matthew chapter seven, dealing with the uh, Jesus Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter seven, verse one: "Judge not, that you be not judged." And then, as Jesus is teaching about why we should not be involved in in hypocritical or arrogant, uh, critical, negative critical evaluation of others. Uh, and I pointed out that the Bible never says we shouldn't evaluate other people. We do that all the time. If you are an employer and you're going to hire somebody, you have to evaluate them. You have to judge them. If you are a teacher and you have to fill out grades at the end of the six weeks, you have to judge your students' uh, activities. So we judge people in a positive sense all the time. And it's good. But what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7 is making negative, arrogant, harsh judgments about a person's spiritual life based on your own understanding. Even if you might be right, saying, well, that person's carnal. That person is a spiritual loser. Now, there are certain things that some people do that are clear and obvious and overt, and everybody knows that. But that's not our job to be their spiritual uh, judge and evaluator in, within the framework of Christianity. That's not our job. We're to encourage other believers. So this is a point that we're not to be out there trying to straighten everybody out according to whatever standards we have. In fact, when there are problems, Jesus gives us a, 
a guideline, Matthew 7, 3 and 4, where he says, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, or the grain of sand, the microscopic grain of sand that got into your brother's eye, but you don't consider the plank or the oak beam that's in your own eye? In other words, you're so concerned about this little idiosyncrasy that in somebody else's life and this problem that they've created that you are, are turned a blind eye in self-absorption. You've just completely ignored uh, the problems that you have or the part or the role that you played in contributing to the conflict and the breakdown in the relationship. So he point, Jesus points out basically that the place to start is that we have to evaluate ourselves in terms of uh, looking at, objectively looking at our own life, our own contribution to the problem. Now, we can conclude from that that either A, we didn't contribute at all, B, our contribution was in a sort of general sense because uh, we're all uh, imperfect, we all commit certain uh, things that do certain things that are wrong or that are irresponsible or aren't as uh, <clears throat> productive as they should be. And so in some general sense, there is, uh, we, we're always, we can always look at something and say, well, if I had done this or if I had done that. And then the third thing is to recognize what I would call a direct contribution to a particular uh, problem. We have to decide where we are on and and that's the focus of the self-evaluation. Are we just are we just completely completely and totally uh, innocent of anything? For example, if you're in a contract with somebody and uh, they're going to provide something for you, they're going to let's say build a house for you and you give them uh, a down payment uh, $20,000, $30,000 to begin, and they abscond with that money. They have broken the contract. They, the, there's a breach in the relationship. You've done nothing wrong. They've done something wrong. That's the first example. The second example would be let's just continue to work with a, uh, somebody who's building a house. Over the period of time that this con- uh, the, the contractor begins to build on the house, um, you know, deadlines are missed, maybe... Uh, there are things that you were supposed to provide that you didn't get, the, get the, them provided in time, something like that, just general things that happen living in a fallen world with, with people who run late and make bad decisions, things like that. But it's nothing that's, that's, uh, <clears throat> that's not reversible. That would be the second category. The third category is where uh, perhaps you have, uh, as the buyer, that you have committed to certain uh, uh, provision of certain things, and you not only don't provide the things that you've committed to, but you begin to uh, maybe sabotage uh, the building of the house. And the, the builders are out there working during the day. The contra- uh, contractors and carpenters are out during the day, and at night you slip in there and, and begin to tear things down. So there, that is an example of where you are an active contributor to the breakdown of the uh, of the relationship, so we have to evaluate ourselves to see where are we in, in terms of the the spectrum. Now, the problem that I pointed out last time is some people have such a hypersensitive conscience that um, <clears throat> they are uh, they'll always fail a lie detector test. 
you know, they'll go in and get all strapped up, and you ask them, have you ever committed a crime? And they'll think about it, and they'll say, oh, well, I'm sure I have somewhere. So they're, they just immediately put themselves under a load of guilt. And that's, uh, so they immediately, as soon as somebody comes along, there's a conflict with someone. When that other person tries to avoid taking responsibility for the con- conflict and uses some various manipulative techniques to try to get the always assign blame to the other person and make them assi- uh, accept blame, the person who has the really tender conscience is going to be the first person to say, okay, it's my fault, you're right, you're right, I, I did everything wrong. They haven't. So that's as bad a scenario as someone who's done everything wrong. I tried to point some of those things out last time. So we have to learn to work through these these processes. Now, the illustrations that I'm using are illustrations that may not be as severe as we do find in people's lives. You have serious things that happen in people's lives in terms of uh, business deals where there are people who breach contracts or they engage in fraudulent contracts. Uh, for example, this last uh, last couple of years, everyone's familiar with the uh, Bernie Madoff uh, Ponzi scheme. And in a situation like that, people's lives, their retirement are are virtually lost, they're ruined, it's irrecoverable, fortunes are destroyed, and it's 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 devastating. There are situations that occur within marriages that take place that cause just just uh, t- terrible breaches uh, within those relationships. There are things that happen between parents and children that children harbor resentment and anger for generation or not for for decades, or parents. Uh, harbor resentment. I know of families where children have grown up and they have been uh, very uh, <clears throat> ungrateful towards their parents. They've gotten involved in uh, various illegal activities and drugs and drug use, and uh, and even to the point where uh, the parents may may have to <clears throat> completely wash their hands of any involvement with their children because of the way they have so irresponsibly been involved in criminal activity or drug use or things of that nature. And then years later, I don't know of a case within my extended family where this happened, where one of my something fourth or fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, gener- ninth cousins, 15th removed or whatever it is, was uh, uh, just continuously did drugs, continuously got arrested, finally uh, his f- father and his mother had to say, we're just going to cut you off completely, and we can't do this anymore. We can't bail you out anymore. You're just going to have to take complete responsibility for their life. And they didn't hear from him for 20 years. Now, think about that. That, that Now, trying to resolve that, it's hard. 20 years later, he calls them up. He's married, has two kids. He's become a Christian. <laughs> and... Uh, <clears throat> So then you have to, now there are a lot of hurt feelings there, and you have to go through a process and, and deal with some of those issues that are still hanging, may still be hanging on. And, um, <clears throat> you know, this is, well, a story about him is he, he and I went to high school together, and I never could find him because he was always out behind the temporary buildings uh, smoking dope with Dennis Quaid. So, um he went back a long ways. Um, but we, when you have problems like that in a family, and there are other things that happen within families, it's really hard, it's really difficult uh, to go through any kind of conflict resolution. 
And that's when we have to go to the Scriptures, and we can't do this on our own. Scripture says the only way you can really truly do this, you can go through the motions, but if you haven't dealt with the real uh, internal heart issues you're, and really learned what it means to biblically forgive somebody and to be reconciled with somebody, and it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, you can't have real peace with people if it's just... Um, like I remember the first time I saw some kids get in a fight in about third grade and they had to kiss and make up. Well, they, they, they had to, you know, do the kiss and make up thing, but they were fighting down the street after school that day because there's no resolution of the problem. So scripture gives us the basics for this and it always goes back to the cross. That's why I keep emphasizing our understanding of the cross, thinking about the dynamics of what happens between God and man in that basic conflict that is, from human perspective, irreparable. And yet God provides the solution. And that is always the pattern that the New Testament goes to if we are going to forgive one another and if there is going to be peace. So, Tonight what I want to do is look at the passage in Ephesians 4.32 and following. So just turn with me in your Bibles to the fourth chapter of Ephesians. Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5 are two of the most challenging chapters for the Christian life that you'll find in the New Testament. And the reason is, is that God's standard has never lowered just because you get on the other side of the cross, away from the Mosaic law, doesn't mean the standard of God somehow lowered. Grace doesn't mean the standard is lower. Grace means that God's relationship with us is not dependent on us keeping the standard. It means God's relationship with us is dependent upon him providing the solution for us having broken the standard. That's what grace is. It means that we don't have to go through 25 or 30 steps in order to then get God's forgiveness, but that God gave that forgiveness freely on the basis of what Christ did on the cross. We just accept it. But when we get on the other side of that, it doesn't mean that it's, that there's no standards anymore. It doesn't mean that... Um, that God doesn't expect a behavioral code out of us. What it does say is that our ultimate relationship, that family relationship with God, is not based on meeting those standards, but he's saying, okay, now you're a member of my family. You can't ever lose that status. That status has been given to you freely because you trusted in Christ as your Savior. You're in the family. But if you're going to be part of this family, there are the, some things that... Uh, we do and some things that we don't do, and here are the standards. Now, we're all going to break most of these most of the, or a lot of the time, depending on uh, various factors, but the recognition in the Scripture is a realistic one that we, are, uh, we sin, we fail. But that, is, that does not mean we have to start over again. It doesn't mean we go to jail. It doesn't mean we go back to square one. It means that God meets us where we are with forgiveness. So that's always the pattern. So we'll look at Ephesians 4, and starting in, uh, <clears throat> starting in um, let's see, let's go down to 
verse 25. Starting about verse 25, we have a series of imperative mood verbs. Eleven, uh, eleven imperative mood verbs. And an imperative is just a, a command from God that this is the standard uh, according to which my family members are going to live. Okay? Just like if you were a parent, I see a number of parents here, you were a parent, when you were raising your children, you said, this is the way you're going to live if you're going to be in my house and you're my child. You're going to follow these rules. And, you know, when kids violated the rules, broke the rules, there was punishment, but they didn't get kicked out of the house. They remained members of the family. So the first, the first imperative is in verse 25. The, the, uh, <clears throat> the, the command is to speak the truth with his neighbor. Now, the first part of that verse, you see the ing word there, putting away lying. That's a participle in the Greek, and it should be understood as an instrumental participle. Let each of you speak truth with his neighbor by putting away lying. It expl- it's a description of you take off lying, you get rid of it, and you speak the truth. That's the positive command. The second is in verse 26, you have a, another present imperative. Now, all of these, with the exception of one in, in verse 31, are present tense imperatives. Now, the difference between a present tense imperative in the Greek and an aorist tense imperative in the Greek is a present tense is emphasizing something that is supposed to be ongoing, uh, standard operating procedure. This is supposed to characterize your life day in, day out. This is expressing an ongoing standard. When the writer shifts to an aorist tense, we don't have anything comparable to an aorist tense in English. It's sort of a summary type tense, but in uh, outside of the indicative mood, it doesn't. The tenses don't have time factors in Greek, so you're either talking about it in terms of continuous action, or you're talking about it in just you're just punching something. And so, an aorist imperative is like you're you're taking the commandment and you're putting it in bold face. And it may not, it's sort of saying this is supposed to be a priority. It's just for emphasis. So you have this whole string of present imperatives. Uh, speak the truth, verse 26 says, be angry. Be angry. It's a present passive in, uh, <clears throat> uh, imperative there. And so we recognize that it is valid to be angry in some areas. This is a self-righteous anger. Be angry, but the flip side is, and do not sin. Uh, verse 26, so it's an anger where there's not sin involved. You're not going to allow sin, uh, a sinful response to come out of the anger. And then uh, the next and the third uh, imperative in that verse is, do not let the sun go down on your wrath or down on your anger. In other words, deal with it. Don't let it fester. Don't let it be something that you uh, sleep on and keep in your memory so that uh, you keep a record of these offenses. And someday when the time is right, you just get mad and you bring out your grocery list and read off all the things the other person has done wrong. Uh, Do not you have to deal with it before the day's over with and set it aside. That's the hardest thing for us to do, especially in 
uh, conflicts that have hurt us deeply and profoundly is to set that aside and act as if it never happened and to, to truly live and think as if it never happened. Uh, <clears throat> be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down in your, in your, on your wrath. And then third is don't give place or give an opportunity to the devil. Now that all needs to be understood together that when we are, uh, become angry and if we sin, it gives opportunity to the devil in the sense that that gives us an opportunity, uh, through sin to, uh, continue to spiral out of control into more and more mental attitude sins or sins of the tongue as we react to this conflict that has been generated. Verse 28 uh, says, uh, Let him who stole steal no longer. That's the imperative. Do not steal any longer. In contrast, but rather let him labor. Now, this is a great verse uh, in the Bible, uh, several places you have in both the New Testament and Old Testament, the emphasis on the importance of labor, not as a, not as a, a negative, toilsome thing, but the importance of work. At the, in Thessalonians, Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat, period. Uh, in the Old Testament, you have various uh, passages that, uh, back in the Mosaic Law, emphasizing the value of work. Why? Work mirrors what God did in the six days of the creation week. He labored. That's the very first picture that we see of God as a creator, as a laborer, as someone who is uh, creating and working with all of the elements in order to uh, make the uh, solar system, make the planets, make the uh, make the earth, make all of the creatures upon the earth. Labor is good. It's valuable, and it's part of our makeup to imitate that uh, in the image of God. So we are to labor. We are not to rely upon other people's labor and other people's productivity in order to benefit us. This is, this, this is a verse that is a direct contradiction to the, the whole philosophy of socialism and the whole philosophy of Marxism. That's going to surprise some of you uh, when you get to heaven to discover that Karl Marx is going to be there. So just, I'm just going to warn you and prepare you uh, for this right now. Karl Marx was born into a Jewish family. His father converted to Christianity when he was about 13 or 14 years of age. And uh, it wasn't long after that that, that uh, Karl did as well. And he was a, a very enthusiastic uh, Christian. He was very devoted for about five years before he decided he didn't uh, like Christianity anymore. And during that time, I'm trying to get a hold of this, but during that time uh, when he was in high school, he wrote a paper on justification by faith. And uh, my friend John Hintz, who's pastor of Tucson Bible Church, has lost this somewhere in his file cabinet. Uh, but he read it some years ago, and he told me, he said, Robbie, it's the finest explanation of the uh, New Testament doctrine of justification by faith alone that you'll ever read. It's impossible for somebody to have written that who didn't believe it. And uh, I've seen this documented in a number of places. So just get ready. You never know who's going to end up in heaven because God is gracious. There are going to be people who are going to see you there and wonder, wow, how'd they get here? <laughs> so 
we're to, we're to labor. Labor is honorable, and we're to uh, live on the basis of our own work. That's all part of divine institution number one, human responsibility. Working with our hands what is good that he may have something to give him who has need. That's the principle is that, you know, this is something parents ought to instill in their children, that as a believer, part of your responsibility is to work hard be productive so that you have an excess that can be used to help those who just can't help themselves. All the way through Scripture, there's an emphasis on helping those who are unable. It's not that they couldn't work, but they but they don't. It's that they just can't, whether it's disease, whether it's age, uh, whether whatever the situation may be, they are unable to take care of themselves. And so we are to be involved and to work hard, have a high stand. When you start off in life as a as an eight year old, ten year old, twelve year old, parents ought to be instilling in them, have a vision for making enough money to take care of other people. Don't have just a selfish little ideal that you're just going to make enough money to take care of yourself, but that you should excel as a as a Christian so that you have an abundance that you can then generously and graciously use to help those who have uh, who have need. Verse 29, the next command, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, only what is good uh, for necessary edification that it may impart uh, grace to to the hearers. That's verse 29. Then in verse 30, the command, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This is just one command in the, in the midst of these 11 or so imperatives here. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And then I think that the relationship of the next verse is directly related to that. That's why we shift from a uh, a present tense to an aorist imperative. And the aorist imperative sort of punctuates uh, everything that's been said, and, and we, we're going to have a staccato effect here, as Paul says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil, uh, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Notice it just boom, 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 and they're all either mental attitude sins or, uh, in, in uh, the sense of evil speaking, sins of the tongue. These are always the worst sins. Most people go to five or six of their favorite overt sins, and uh, it's always interesting to ask people, what do you th- how do you define sin? What do you think sin is? Some people say, well, sin is, you know, smoking, drinking, and dancing. Sin is uh, uh, doing this or doing that. Or they'll define sin in terms of whatever the current vogue social sins are that are big in that culture at that particular time in history. What is sin? Sin is any action, any thought, any deed that violates the character of God, that falls short of his standard. That's what the Hebrew word chata means, and, and means to fall short of a standard. And so God sets the standard. Anytime you fall short of that standard, which is absolute perfection, then you have sinned. You've fallen short. When you violate a commandment, that's called a uh, transgression. Uh, in, in both Old Testament and New Testament words have that same idea of violating a standard. So... Uh, sin is, viol- is anything that falls short of God's absolute standard. It is, um, it's missing the mark, falling short of the target. So let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, all these are mental attitude sins along with all malice, be put away from you. And then we have a, a contrast here. This is the verse I want to look at, verse 32. And be kind to one another. And then this is modified 
What does it mean to be kind to one another? And the next word is translated to be tender-hearted. That means soft and uh, forgiving uh, one another. And the key word there is uh, is charizomai. The, the imperative is to be kind to one another. Now, you, there's all kinds of things that we could say about being kind, but we all know what kind is. And sometimes at the end of the day, it's a little convicting to say, was I really kind to people today? Uh, at the end of the day, when somebody says, uh, well, you know, I saw you down at the grocery store with that cash register, uh, talking to that person at the cash register, that wasn't really kind. Are you known for being a kind person? Uh, that's part of being grace-oriented, being kind to one another, uh, tender-hearted. Now, how do you ex- how is this kindness expressed? Now, this is why grammar is important. In English, you don't see it by looking at you. You see two, three things here. Be kind to one another. It's almost as if you have three commands. Be kind to one another, be tender-hearted, and be forgiving of one another. That's not what it means in the Greek. In the Greek, it says be kind to one another, Tender-hearted then comes along with the idea of being compassionate, and it modifies or helps explain a little bit of what it means to be kind. And then forgiveness there, charisma is in a participial form, and it's a it's an instrumental uh, adverb there, indicating that you're kind to one another by forgiving them. That's how you demonstrate kindness is by forgiving somebody of the things that they, the, the violations, the hurt feelings, the uh, breaches that, uh, that they have generated or the conflicts that they've generated. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, by forgiving one another. And then we get the comparison. Now, don't be kind like, the, 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 like your grandfather was. Don't be kind like the man down the street was or like your Sunday school teacher was. You're to be kind and by forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you. Okay, that's the standard. As God in Christ forgave you. And then the next verse, see, most of the time we don't read verse 1 immediately after verse 32 because there's a chapter division there and sometimes there's a heading. But it should be read, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, by forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, command again, be imitators of God as dear children. So that's the pattern. If you're going to understand forgiveness, that means then you have to go to what Christ, what God does for the individual human being at the point of salvation. This is when we experience Forgiveness and and what forgiveness means and the word here that's translated forgiving is I, the, the broader word it's charizomai charis is the noun for grace so it has the idea of being gracious to somebody grace is something that is undeserved and unmerited so we are kind to one another by being gracious to them in the arena of forgiveness when they have uh, committed some fault against us then we are going to uh, charizomai them. That means we're going to wipe the slate clean. It's, it's a word that is used uh, in, in economic contests, in monetary contests, of wiping out a debt, of erasing the debt. When you erase the debt, you're not going to come back a year later and say, 
I think that I'm going to need to remind you of the fact that you still owe me $500. So you don't do that. You've erased the debt. You don't ever come back. You don't ever bring it up again. That ties us back to the uh, idea in verse 26 of not letting the sun go down on your wrath. There is an eradication in your mind of this fault. You're not going to bring it up again. You're not going to think about it again. When the next time you get angry with that person, you're not going to resurrect those, this list of faults in the past because they've been, uh, they've been put in the shredder and then the shredder's been emptied into the big hefty, big black hefty plastic garbage bag that's been put out of the street and taken away. It's not an issue anymore. That's what it means to wipe out that debt. That's what forgiveness is. And, and we forget completely about the, the uh, previous faults. And that's what God has done for us. Now, for many of us, when we sit down and we think about, well, what did God do for us, we realize how many ways in which we have, uh, in, in small ways to large ways, how we have broken God's uh, commandments, whether they're the, whether we think of the Ten Commandments, but all the many different mandates that you have from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we break these time and time again. There are times when we know that our priorities aren't what God wants our priorities to be. Our values aren't what, uh, what God's values are. There are many different things that we do that aren't just, uh, that, that are wrong. But we do them and we will continue to do them. That's not justifying it. It is a reality that we will do that, so get over yourself and don't be on a guilt trip. That's why we have grace. We are forgiven by God, and he wipes the slate clean because he's provided the ultimate solution. Now, how did he do that? This is where I want to go back into the Old Testament and point out a couple of things so that we can understand forgiveness. So I want you to turn to... I want you to turn to... Uh, Leviticus chapter 3. We'll go back to the Torah. Uh, Leviticus chapter 3, and we'll look at one of the offerings that you had in the, in the uh, tabernacle and temple, the peace offering. Now, while you're turning there, I want to read to you a, a definition out of the uh, Concise Oxford English Dictionary for forgiveness. Uh, the verb forgive... Uh, means, uh, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, to stop feeling angry or resentful towards somebody for an offense or a mistake. To stop feeling angry or resentful towards someone for something. That's the same thing that we have in this, in this list of mandates at the end of Ephesians chapter 4. Be angry, do not sin, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. In other words, you're not going to uh, maintain that feeling of anger. You're not going to maintain that feeling of resentment. Uh, you're going to move forward and wipe it out and forget about it. And that's the, 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 in forgiveness, the noun, it's the action or the process of being forgiven. I think that word process for us, it's not a process for God, but it's a process for us because what we tend to do is that we look at this, res- this thing that this person has done against us. We focus on the hurt We're focused on the way we have been betrayed. We put all the focus on, look at what they did to me. Look at how I was betrayed. How could they do that? And and we just, we get so caught up in that, that, that we, we just can't let it go. And then we realize, 
we come to Bible class, we learn a lesson like this, we realize I've got to let that go. So we're saying, I'm going to forgive them, uh, even though they haven't asked me and they don't recognize there's a wrong there, at least on my part, there's going to be one category of forgiveness here, and I'm not going to be bitter, resentful, have any mental attitude, sins towards them, and then f- five minutes later, you're, you thought about it and you're starting to get mad again. And we have to go through that process sometimes for days or weeks or months or years or decades before we finally sort of uh, settle down and realize and, and fully be able to apply uh, the principle of forgiveness. And, and I, I'm a little bit facetious there when I say, you know, weeks and months and years. Some things are very serious and very hard for some people to get over. As long as you understand where, the, where you're headed and where you're moving in that, uh, you know you're going in the right direction. Some things you, you just can't flip a switch in some situations in life, and you're immediately going to apply the doctrine, especially if you're just an immature baby believer. Uh, when you're a mature believer and you've built on years and years of practicing and applying these principles, then it becomes much easier to do because you've managed to uh, be, you know, move, remove yourself from the mire of, uh, of, of self-absorption and self-justification and all of the things that go with arrogance as you have grown in maturity as a believer. But when you're a young believer, when you're an immature believer, it, it's going to, that's part of the growth process. You just have to learn to, uh, to apply that. In, in Hebrew, you have a couple of words that are used. Uh, the primary words are salach, S-A-L-A-C-H, which means to forgive or to pardon. It's that same idea that, you ha- that we have in Afiemi, to pardon or to release somebody uh, from a debt. Uh, the, another word that is used in, in the Hebrew that is often used for forgiveness is the Hebrew word nasah, and that indicates to lift or to carry something away. Now, that is a, such a great, uh, great illustration. We'll come back and talk about this probably in a couple of weeks as we get close to uh, uh, Yom Kippur, and I'll talk about uh, Leviticus in terms of Yom Kippur. But uh, at, on the Day of Atonement, there would be two, uh, two goats brought in, or two goats or lambs that are brought in that are um, without spot or blemish. And the priest puts his hands on the heads of both of them, and he recites the sins of the people. And it's a, that, that picture there of the priest putting his hands on the sacrificial animals is a picture of their identification with him and with those sins so that they're being transferred via substitution. Being, those sins are being transferred and put upon those uh, innocent sacrificial animals. One of them is taken to the altar. He is slaughtered on the altar his blood is then taken and is put on the uh on the ark of the covenant uh, on the mercy seat and god in his righteousness looks upon that and is satisfied that's the meaning of propitiation his justice is satisfied by the shed blood because the shed blood represents the fact that a payment for the sin has been made now the other the other goat is taken out into the wilderness he is taken by a friend, 
the, the scripture says. We've talked about that before because you want to make sure it's somebody who's a trusted friend who will do what he's supposed to do and not become lazy in the process, but he's supposed to take that other goat and take it as far, so far out in the wilderness that the goat can never find his way back. And that's a picture of how far God removes our sin from us. When we're forgiven, it's taken away and it never comes back. And that's the idea in Nassau. It's something is carried away. It's lifted up. It's, it's like a burden being taken off of our shoulders and off of our back, and it is completely removed. Now, the point, thing is that under the, under the Old Testament sacrificial system, every year you have to come back to that Day of Atonement because the blood of bulls and goats cannot permanently solve the sin problem. They all looked forward to something. And if you look at the scripture, going back to where I was at the beginning, you have Adam and Eve in the garden, and they and they sin. Now they try to hide the fact of their sin by sewing uh, garments of fig leaves, and God says that's not going to work. Man cannot cover up the sin problem. Uh, fig leaves are not going to be any kind of a solution. So I've got to teach you a little bit about what's going to be involved in this solution. It's, there's got to be a death. Remember I said the penalty for, for eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is death. So there has to be a death. And so God took uh, a lamb, and he doesn't say that per se in the text, but I think we can... Uh, say that from what is indicated in the pattern of Scripture, takes an animal, probably a lamb or a goat, and slaughters it, skins it, and makes clothes for Adam and Eve from the animal hide. So, And I've talked about how so much had to be going on there because God's got to teach them about anatomy. He has to teach them about uh, how to sharpen a knife blade so it's sharp enough to... Uh, uh, to skin the animal and to properly treat the hide and what to use in treating the hide so that it uh, will stay uh, soft and supple and how to uh, remove the hair from the hide and how to uh, lay out a pattern. I, one of the most surprising things I learned about my father was that my father was kind of a math whiz. He was tutoring calculus at the University of Houston when he was 15 years old. When I was 15, I failed algebra. I didn't get that gene. I didn't get the math or the engineering gene. I got the theology gene and the philosophy gene, but I didn't get the engineering gene. And uh, when, But when he was 10 years old, remember he's a child of the Depression, he's laying out, my, my grandmother would go to a store and see a dress that she wanted. She couldn't afford it, so she would come home. My dad would take it and lay out the pattern and draw out the pattern, and then she would cut the material on the basis of the pattern that he laid out, So that, and then she would make a dress. And I thought, I looked at my dad when I learned that. I was in high school. I think, really? I don't even know how to begin doing something like that. But anyhow, that's what God is doing. He had to teach them how to make a pattern so that they could uh, make clothes for themselves. All of that's going in there. But the the, the, the point that the text is making theologically is that they're, there had to be a covering. Now, here you just have your basic lamb sacrifice in, in Genesis chapter, at the end of chapter 3, where it just says God clothed them with animal skins. Now, if that's all we had, then we might not be justified into saying all the things I just said. But what happens as you go into a couple more chapters in Genesis, when Noah gets off of the ark and he has a sacrifice, 
and he already knows the difference between a clean and an unclean animal, and unclean animals on the ark were two by two, male and female, but clean animals were by seven, three pair and an extra. The extras for a sacrifice. First thing Noah did when he got off the boat was he had a sacrifice. Where did he get the sacrifices? Took the seventh of each of these pairs of clean animals and had a sacrifice. We don't get any more information than that until later on when we get into Genesis chapter 22, 21 rather, and Abraham has been told by God to take his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah where he's going to sacrifice uh, Isaac to God, human sacrifice. But, I, but Abraham's gone through these tests, and we've gone through 13 key tests that we saw in the life of Abraham, all of them designed to teach Abraham to really trust God and to really believe God when God said, I'm going to give you a seed, and it's going to be your son Isaac, and it's going to be through Isaac that your seed are named. Well, finally, the light bulb went off. Abraham really got the point. And when God said, go kill him, Abraham says, sure, God, because I know you're always faithful to your promises, which means that if you told me that my my descendants are going to be named through Isaac, they will be. Even if I kill him, you're going to have to bring him back to life so that you can fulfill your promises because I know you never break your word. And so we have a beautiful picture there of substitution. Then we get another Another 500 years goes by, and we get the Mosaic Law with a whole detail of different uh, different sacrifices and offerings. And just as we wrap up here, I just want to hit this this one in Leviticus chapter three is the peace offering. That's the foundation. <clears throat> when uh, Moses writes, when his offering is a sacrifice of a peace offering, if he offers it of the herd, whether male or female, so that would be a little more expensive sacrifice for a, a, a wealthier person, uh, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. Why is it without blemish? Because it's going, it's depicting something that's going to happen in the future. There's got to be a sinless sacrifice to function as a substitute for a sinful human being. A sinful person can't be, or can't be sacrificed for a sinful person. A sinless person has to be there. So it has to be without blemish. He shall lay his hand on the head of his offering. That's the whole picture of transference of guilt and identification. And kill it at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. That's the gateway going into the, the, the tabernacle. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle the blood all around the altar. So the, the peace offering was a picture of sacrifice. I mean, it was a picture of the fellowship between God and man. This is the only sacrifice where the food is shared between uh, with the priests, where they eat part of it, indicating fellowship. But that fellowship, the reconciliation that comes, comes only because what? A sacrifice has been made. And in, in terms of dealing with with the subject of conflict resolution, the problem's got to be dealt with. The sin has got to be dealt with. It can't be just overlooked because then it's going to come back again and again and again. You can't just be the innocent party and say, well, I'm going to accept blame for this out of, out of uh, my own guilt complex because then the person who's committed the offense is just going to say, well, I got away with that. I can do it again. 
So there's no real resolution. You can't have real forgiveness until the problem is honestly and openly dealt with and admitted. That's the meaning of confession, to admit and acknowledge um, acknowledge guilt. We'll come back and talk about that next time. But the foundation here is that picture of that peace offering. And the emphasis is there can't be real forgiveness. There can be a subjective partial or sort of a subjective forgiveness on our part as we say, okay, this person's offended me. This person's caused a problem. This person has injured me in some way, but I'm not going to uh, harbor mental attitude sins against them in terms of bitterness, anger, resentment, uh, revenge, motivation, or anything like that. That's one aspect of forgiveness that we can do. But we can't truly forgive them in the full sense of the word until there is a recognition and admission of guilt on their part. And sometimes they won't ever do that. So that's why we, we have to go through that first stage in terms of our own spiritual health and not having resentment because it may be 50 years before that other person is going to come along and say, you know, I was wrong. They may never do it. So we can't let our mental attitude be ever dependent on other people's volition. We have to take care of that between ourselves and the Lord. So next time we'll come back and look at this whole issue of uh, forgiveness with God and how that impacts our understanding of forgiveness towards others. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to reflect a little more about grace, reflect a little more about your plan, your purposes in human history, and to come to understand uh, once again that that forgiveness uh, isn't a trite word, it isn't a light word, it means to completely erase, eradicate, remove uh, the offense. And that is what happened at the cross, is that certificate of debt against us, was removed, it was nailed to the cross, it's eradicated so that there is a legal basis then of our, uh, of our being debt-free so that we can then trust Christ as the one who saved us and experience that forgiveness in a personal way. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we studied this evening, help us to understand these things uh, clearly as they relate to our own circumstances. We Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.